Welcome, everyone, to a non-standard edition of the Outlaw History Podcast. I am not the voice you were expecting to hear. I am Trey's broadcast partner on the Oh My God cast. My name is Benjamin Lindsay, and we're here to do a, a shoot interview with Trey so that we can see what he's been doing these last few months and kind of get a State of the Trey address <laughs> today, Trey. State of the tree address. I like that. Ben, my friend, my partner, thank you so much for, for being here with me today. I feel I feel a need to do this, and I, I thank you for, for being there with me. Oh, it is my pleasure. I'm glad that you asked me to do so. Uh, hopefully this will signify a return of you to the airwaves, such as they are in podcast land. See, we also have a we we also have Lily here who may or may not uh, may or may not give an answer or two. But Lily is welcome. Her wisdom is much needed as well. Lily is my beautiful gray tabby who's the best cat ever. And sometimes she talks, but right now she's just in the way because mom isn't home. So if mom isn't home, she has to be on me. <laughs> like a good cat should. Yeah. And she is a beautiful kitty, for those of you. I have the benefit of seeing her on the video as we are recording this. And she is a very beautiful cat. Well, let's just get right to it. Um, first off, I think the question that is on everyone's mind is, what have you been up to over the last however long it's been? What have I been up to? Um, however long it's been. How long has it been? What are we? What is our? What is our origin point for... What have I been doing since what? Since your last Outlaw History podcast. Uh, I don't even know. That was like way before like Christmas, wasn't it? Okay. I remember we did we did a Halloween podcast. There might have been one other one. And then I I recorded one with uh with Michael and Nairi about the Armenian genocide that I ended up uh just ended up like never getting edited or released. It's been a while. I um, I kind of, kind of been having a little bit of a hard time. Just, you know, personally, privately, I was, I was in a really bad place for uh, several months after you know I, I reached a point where I like, I'm still in grad school, but I'm not really there anymore. I'm not really involved anymore. And uh, I just wasn't in a good situation, and I ended up uh, moving to Houston, and you know, had a several rough months there. And then I finally, um, I, I got a job as you know, an adjunct at a community college here in Houston, and so. That started in January, and that's just been, you know, it's my first time teaching, so I'm, I'm learning on the job because, you know, and everybody that's been to like grad school in history, you know, like they, they don't really teach you how to teach. It's kind of frustrating, and I, I made a point that it's like, you go through comps, and when you finish comps, you have the most highly specialized knowledge. And you know, you know at that point better than you have ever known just how complicated uh, history is as a field and a discipline, and just how hard it is to effectively synthesize. And then the first thing they do after that is tell you, okay, go teach a survey class. So you've got to 
you got to kind of reevaluate, you know, everything you just learned to, to figure out how to teach. So, you know, it's challenging and I'm just, I'm hoping I'm doing a decent job and hoping I'll get better for, you know, you know, I don't know how long I'll keep doing this, but I hope, I hope I keep developing at it and getting better. And I hope that I'm doing something beneficial to the students, you know, just, just trying my best, man. You know, that's all any of us can do. And what is it exactly that you're teaching? Uh, uh, first half U.S. history. I'm teaching you know, three sections, but it's the same class. Okay. Um, and I, I believe when I had you on my podcast, we talked a little bit about that. But I agree that trying to – once you have accepted how complicated history, especially U.S. history or any history is, and then – taking that step back and trying to distill it down into 16 weeks in a survey and get as much as you can when you are, as the title says, a survey, you are just kind of a surface level explanation of a lot of these things. It's very difficult to choose what you are and are not going to spend amounts of time on. And I haven't had the pleasure of doing that myself yet although that will probably be changing before long. How are you grappling with that? What things have you decided to focus on? What things have you decided you can spend little time or no time on? Okay, so I just um, kind of in, in the American Revolution, I'm just going to kind of like I'm getting ready to tomorrow and Tuesday to do the wrap-up of the War of Independence and sort of the beginning of the Republic. So I'm right in that spot. And I noticed as soon as I started looking at what it, what I wanted to teach from from that, from the American Revolution, I immediately started to feel more comfortable because I was more kind of in my own wheelhouse. You know, it, U.S. history from about, you know, 1775 to 1865 was the, the time period that I read obsessively about you know, from the time that I was a little kid. The, before that, it was based on... I tried to spend a good amount of time on indigenous America, like pre-contact America, and emphasize native agency, that there's no one uniform Native American identity, that there's all these different cultures and language groups and societies, you know, cities that have been rising and falling in America for centuries before Europeans ever stumbled into this hemisphere and that was based on uh, I got a pretty strong reading background in Native American historiography in grad school and so it just feels like something you know it's I have the benefit of knowing that that's really important and I so I focus on it the same with you know I try to be because you know when we grew up first reading about history it was all kind of you know, history made by a series of great white men. So it it takes some mental power to remember that there are a lot of there are a lot of voices that we need to acknowledge, to give voice to, to to show their place in the narrative. So I think that's a really good point, especially since that great man style of history is still in sway in so many places. 
I know that in the class that I'm TAing, which is about citizenship this semester, uh, this last Friday's my discussion were about the American and French revolutions. And I focus more on the French Revolution because I figured that they got a sense of the American Revolution in high school. So I didn't spend as much, should have gone the other way and complicated the American Revolution for them. But I, I really, that is something that I, I, many educators, I think, struggle with. So I can, I like how you've decided to focus on the lesser known voices. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know if I'm doing an awesome job at that or not, but it's just something that I'm, you know, trying to be conscious of that. And it's a little bit awkward for me because, you know, I'm this white guy and most of my students are, are uh, people of color. So I, I am trying to, you know, I'm trying to talk about racism to people who know more about racism than I ever will. You know, all yeah. I have is, all I have is, you know, theoretical knowledge and some, you know, empirical knowledge just of being alive in America, but I don't have that, you know, I, I don't have that lived experience of racism in America. But what I try to do is I try to make that an important and consistent part of the story where as we, you know, unfold the development of this thing called America, the role that race is playing in that development. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm at least trying to do that to be cognizant of how important race is in this, you know, overall narrative. Yeah. And I really think that that's, especially your first time through, that's really all that you can hope to do. Um, but I'm sure that your students appreciate you at even attempting, because it's probably not something that they get a whole lot of in past classes, at least at the, you know, secondary level or pre-secondary level. Yeah, see, like, it's been, you know, it's been so long since I've been in high school that, like, <laughs> I barely remember what I thought I knew after high school. So, like, and the other thing is I have a lot of international students mm. that, so that's another thing that I try to be very cognizant of that I'm making sure and I, you know, if, if any time I'm not making anything clear enough to somebody who doesn't have that frame of reference that, you know, we take for granted, like you said, that you assume most of our students have a basic degree of familiarity with major topics. Yeah. You know, some of them don't. And, that's true. But, you know, there's. There's only so I, I can only I can only clarify what they asked me to clarify. And I wish I wish that I could read minds and understand. And I think I think that's a thing that. Oh, sorry. I just dropped something to make some noise behind the microphone. I think that that's something that will come with experience. It's like this is my first time doing this. And I'm just, you know, I, I, I'm just trying to do my best. And, you know. Yeah. And again, I'm. I'm very confident in your abilities considering your passion and knowledge of the subject matter. I want to move on now to something else though, because I think that a lot of your fans primarily interact with you on Twitter and man, Twitter has been a thing. Um, so I wanted to kind of get into that. And first off, what is your current Twitter handle? Oh God, it's, yeah, I, I don't even want to talk about it. I don't even want to talk about the Twitter handle. I'll talk about Twitter. Here's the thing. Um, I I can't 
like it's I gotta do something. I gotta get away. It's I don't know. The, the, we're, we're gonna unlock a whole lot of other shit if we get into this conversation. It's it's really hard to let go of because they're you know people that people that I cherish and friendships I value that I interact with through Twitter. But I don't know. It, I haven't been well mentally in a long time, and Twitter brings out some of my worst impulses and I I can't always control them and I just I don't know man I don't know what's wrong with me I kind of I don't know I, I worry a lot I just, I feel like I'm a bad person you know I, I, I feel like I'm a bad person why I mean I'm not around for all your interactions on Twitter obviously and I've only known you for a few years now, but I don't think of you as a bad person at all. And I've seen little in your public interactions that would make me think of you as a bad person. It's just because I, I know I can be a better person than I am. And I, I'm impatient. I, I lose patience with people and I get, um, I don't know. I just, sometimes I, I act in ways that, you know, make me feel like I'm, I'm, not a very good person so okay so let's move on from the twitter thing then and kind of go you said you are still in grad school even though you're no longer at the institution right so hopefully hopefully if i i and apparently like when i was when i was complaining about this people were telling me that it was ludicrous that like we it, in my program, we are the ones responsible for finding the exact time and moment and space that we can get our entire committee together in one place at one time. And I've been trying, I couldn't get it done last semester because of stuff that was going on. And this, this semester, like now, you know, I'm in one city and I, I teach four days a week. And there's, so it was, so there's like, you know, one little bubble of time on a Friday afternoon that I had to pull everybody together. And I, so I'm hoping I sent the, I had to send the request to reserve the, the room that we do it in, and I haven't heard back yet, but I'm hoping that I will finally, 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 after 11,000 years of suffering, get my proposal defense done uh, this month. Oh, yeah, hopefully so. Um, well, you actually have to get everybody together and then defend it. Yeah. Okay. That's slightly different than what we have to do here, and that I do... I would agree with those voices that say that you being the sole person responsible for wrangling faculty is somewhat unfair because they're the professionals you are not yet. So I don't like, I don't know. Like do, does grad school suck for everybody or do, did I just exceptionally suck at grad school? Cause you know, it, I know like everybody has struggles, but it just always seemed to me like I, I was in particularly bad at it. But maybe, you know, maybe everybody feels that way. I think a lot of people do feel that way. I think that in hearing some of your stories and um, Dr. McCallion's and some of the other people that we know in our online friend group, I think I've been fairly lucky. Um, but I do think that it's, it's a very marginal thing that it just – it's very easy to get a, a scance. And once you get sideways – in grad school at the pace of it and everything, it's very difficult to get it corrected and continue down the path. 
I have been sideways from pretty well, like the, the semester that I started grad school and that I'll, uh, you know what, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell that story. So I started, I started college, uh, you know, a little later in life. So I mean, not like later, later I was, you know, instead of finishing college in my early twenties, I was in my, I was in college in my early twenties. So I graduated from undergrad, you know, like it was like three months before I turned, uh, 26 and I left Arkansas to go to grad school in Mississippi, which was, uh, the first time that I had ever lived away from home. And, uh, so that first semester that I was gone was when my mom got a uh, lung cancer the first time. And so, you know, I spent that whole time, I was kind of going back and forth between Arkansas and Mississippi a lot and stressing over that. And, you know, there were a lot of difficulties in that program that kind of just led to a miserable time. And, I left there in a very bad place. Uh, I had a very bad experience on the way out. And so when I started, that was for my master's. When I started uh, my PhD program, I was already, you know, I was already frazzled because I had had a really rough couple of years. And that first year of the PhD program was like, the first time since I was like high school age that I really, really struggled with depression. Mm-hmm. I had really bad depression, you know, as, you know, as a teenager in like junior high and high school. And it kind of got better, you know, when I got into my 20s. I actually like, I had a great time in undergrad because that was the first time in my life that I really felt like I was doing something good and I was doing well at something and I, I had a direction and I had a goal and that was, you know, a really good time in my life. But then, so I have, I have that one little blip of my early twenties. That was like a really good time in my life. And then, uh, the rest of it has just been, you know, kind of a struggle. So, that was the point that I started my PhD program in. Now the second year was when things got really bad. And that was from, uh, essentially a, a faculty member repeatedly throughout that semester made me feel really, really, really bad about myself and put me in a very dark place uh, that was the point, and I guess this, this would have been about four or five years ago now that like, like that was the point that, you know, I, I started, I started having to sleep with like the TV on or music on or like an audio book just because if I was left alone with my own thoughts, you know, it was going to be bad. Yeah. So that's when that started. And then after that, after I finished my coursework, it took me, it took me like two full years to get ready to take comps because number one, I was, I was sick. I was really messed up. I was, I was going to therapy regularly. I was, you know, 
trying different uh, antidepressants. That was when I got I got diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 31 after I had finished my PhD coursework. And at the the same time I was going through all that, uh, that was my, when my mom got sick again. And I don't know how much uh, you particularly know about lung cancer, but my dad had it. it and that's what yeah. So, him. right. So it seems that it's a regular thing that they'll have the first bout of lung cancer and beat it. But then within a few years, they'll have that second bout and, and that's it. Yeah. And that, uh, so that was what happened to, uh, to my mother. And that, that was something that, you know, really deeply affected me. And, and I know like, you you lost your mother at, uh, within that same time frame, so like yeah. I I know you know the thing, but that was a really bad thing for me, and it's you know it's you know man it's just it it's been like you know I guess two years now, and it's still that sense of loss isn't any less it. it is it any less deep or any less painful? It's, it's still there. It doesn't, maybe you don't feel it every day or you don't feel it two or three times a day, but you, you feel it often enough to know that there's still something, you know, really there. Yeah. And I, I don't want to, I definitely don't want to make this in any way about myself, but no, please, man, uh, share, share your experience, man. We'll um, just... well, I lost my mother. Um, at the end of my first year in the PhD program. And, you know, I had scheduled my defense to, or not my defense, my comps for the end of the second year. And I mean, in some ways I was lucky that she passed away at the end of the first year. So I had the entire summer where I didn't have to try and balance my duties or my coursework um, in dealing with the estate and all of that stuff. But, as the time for her comps came up, you know, it was coming upon the one year anniversary of her passing and I just was not ready. So I had to put them back. And I can remember that first Christmas, you know, when they put up a Christmas tree on campus and my mom just really loved Christmas. And I saw the Christmas tree and it made me think of her and, and how much I wanted to call her. So you're right. You do just see these little reminders and these little things that are connection points. It's fucking devastates you, man. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, well, here's a story about me that not a lot of the public knows. Um, I was in a tornado when I was four months old. Uh, in like January of 1988, we lived in a trailer on my grandparents' property, in a small little town in Arkansas. And, you know, my dad was at work, uh, my mom and my sister, who's eight years older than me, we're all there. And our, our house, our trailer house just gets destroyed. And there's, um, like, if I, if I remember the story, like my, my sister, like it was dark and my sister found me and I had, uh, I had a splinter in my nose, like a little mm -hmm. small splinter, not like a big piece of wood or anything, yeah. a little tiny splinter that had to pull out of my nose. And so, uh. Our family doctor, like for years, you know, my mom would go, how's the tornado baby? <laughs> Why did I tell the tornado baby story? What was I getting at? Oh, uh, my mom, for obviously for that, she was like, she was really like, she would get really upset. And when weather got bad, she would get really nervous. So it was like, 
it was a thing that I would watch even after I moved away. Like whenever I would see that the weather was bad in Arkansas, I'd always call to check on it. And we're like the first time after my mom died that, you know, there was bad weather and it's like, Oh, I should call mom. And they're like, Oh shit. You know, yeah. just so little shit like that. I know what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And you know, my dad passed away in, Oh my gosh, 2008. And there's still times. So, I mean, that's God, that's 12 years ago coming up that he passed away. And the pain lessens and transmogrifies, but it's still there. There are still times when I think about something that's like, man, I really wish that I could tell him that or talk to him about that. So it is an ongoing process. And just, you know, trying to go about your daily life when you have all these other expectations and responsibilities on you. Not that we're the only people in grad school who have those, but a lot of people do get through grad school without suffering that kind of loss. A lot of people are just good at it. They're just good at that, that type of life. I was, I was never good at it, but, and uh, my dad's still around. So it's like uh, all all of, all of my grandparents are are gone. My, My last grandparent died when I was like, Oh, I was a little bit old. I was maybe like 21. So, and with my mom gone and like, I don't have, I'm, I'm not really close with like any aunts or uncles or cousins. So it's like, you know, my, my dad and my sister and my nephews. And that's, you know, that's pretty much, that's all my family except for like, you know, I, I have, you know, very, very great relationship with my wife's family, but as far yeah. as you know, my family, it's, it's just, it's just, you know, the few of us. Yeah. And how did that shape going back and trying to to do everything? I mean, I know how it was for me, but how was it for you? Man, it was it was rough. I don't even like. I just remember being like I was just so useless for like a year that like I was done with classes and I was trying to prepare for comps, but I was just like I was just barely functioning enough to like you know do my my ta classes and you know grade and all that stuff like i was just barely functioning and but i i really hit it hard there for you know several months the last half of i guess was it the last half of 20 yeah it was the last half of 2018 i just went really hard and I took the exams and I felt when I actually did the exams, I felt really good about it. And then the absolute worst day of my life was, uh, my, my defense that I felt so good about and everything was going to be, it was like, Oh no, nobody fails their defense. It's going to be fine. And I failed my defense. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like a complete failure. It was like a, okay, why don't we come back in two weeks and do a little bit more on these two topics? Because honestly, and it was, I, I knew it at the time, that I just, I was so mentally fried from the entire process that when it came down to, I'm not like a great on-the-spot person. Um, I have, I don't know, maybe I, I, maybe I have some kind of panic disorder on top of everything else or something, but I I don't function well when I'm 
you know, having to be under the spotlight and not be prepared. And that's like, that's the reason that like still teaching scares the hell out of me. And that's why I try, you know, so hard just to, just to try to be prepared to, you know, have enough content to, to do what I need to do. Yeah. But it was the fact that in that defense that I was just so mentally fried that I just, I wasn't remembering book titles and I wasn't remembering authors and I wasn't tying them together. And I was just, so yeah, that was uh, absolutely the worst day of my life. But, you know, I came back a couple of weeks later and passed and. How soon after you were done with the written's were your, was your oral defense? Let me think. It was like less than a week. It was like I took I took the written exams over the course of two weeks. And then like I think maybe I finished the last one on a Thursday. And then I think the orals might have been like the Monday. That's a hell of a turnaround. So, yeah. But then you came back, like you said, and, and you got through it the second time. What was you know, did you feel a great weight come off then or what was the your mental state at that point? It was so weird. And that was that that was one of the signs that like there's maybe really something wrong in terms of the depression, because I remember I felt nothing. Felt absolutely nothing. I just. You know, felt empty. I actually. uh I passed my exams and I went home and I immediately started reading another book because I had a, cause I had, I was writing a book review that was, was due like two weeks after I finished cops. Cause I'm so smart. So, yeah. Hmm. And you said that you were going to counseling during this time. Is that correct? Or was it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, during this. Okay. So, I started going to counseling about probably like October of, let me think, 2017, I think. And I had, uh, I had a therapist who I loved. She was just wonderful. She was the best. We had, you know, just, it was a really great experience. And, uh, she ended up like, uh, retiring kind of suddenly because of you know something something that was going on with like with her husband and they were had to like move right then and she was just she was just gonna retire so I didn't have anyone and then that's when that happened and I actually I emailed uh, my therapist and told her about it and you know she emailed me back and then I ended up finding another therapist at that time who was uh, was also really good and I I I liked her a lot. I always, always opt for a women therapist. And that's just a thing with me in that I don't know what it says about me, but I don't trust men to be empathetic. Right. I don't know if that makes sense, but it it makes sense. Every people know what I'm talking about. Uh, So I had, I had that therapist until I moved and just when I left where I was and I came to Houston, I, um, you know, I didn't have my therapist anymore, and then after a few months, uh, I lost my my university health insurance, so I just didn't have health insurance. So it's been like it's been like six months now that like 
uh, I'm supposed to be taking antidepressants. I'm supposed to be taking like medicine for my blood pressure. I haven't taken anything because I, I haven't been to the doctor and I don't. So I have like, I have insurance now through my wife's job, which is like, you know, it's okay. It's going to be, it, it is. If, if I were to try to get back into therapy at this point, it would cost, you know, a lot more like upfront. And I, I don't even know if it's got, I, I don't even know if it's covered. It probably is. But so yeah, we're going, uh, we're going to go see our, uh, our doctor that we were going to, you know, when I was in grad school, because we haven't found a new doctor here yet. We're just going to drive over and see her and hopefully, hopefully she doesn't scream at me too loud when I tell her that I just straight up start, stop taking all of my medication. Like she told me not to do. Yeah. Hopefully she won't. Um, Guess that's not going to help anything. No, she, uh, she she's a great doctor. Yeah, but yeah, the the healthcare situation in this country is not the best, and for grad students, it is often even worse. Um, I know here when I started here, we had a pretty good healthcare plan. We lost it within the first year, about the same time as I me breaking my elbow, which was unfortunate um, on both counts. So the struggle for any kind of health intervention, mental or physical, is real. I mean, we do have a counseling center here on campus, um, but even that is staffed by grad students a lot. So Yeah, and see, the thing is, and I, I, I have intentionally not mentioned the names of any universities, but uh, my, my health insurance was really good, and I know because I used it, but, it, uh, you know, I when my my graduate assistantship ran out that was when i lost my health insurance so you know yeah so speaking of the, the loss of funding and everything because that is every grad student's nightmare or at least one of them um, has there been any talk even though that you now live in a different city of some kind of remediation or reinstatement once you defend your dissertation prospectus no it was just a i didn't lose funding i didn't get stripped of my funding my funding ran out it was we have uh we had four years which i think now like a couple of cohorts after they started with five years but for me it was you have four years and then it's you know whatever a lot of people get uh you know, graduate lecture positions, I didn't, and I knew I wasn't going to, so. Okay, so you've kind of made a, a name for yourself as a public intellectual with your TED Talk and then your um, Twitter participation and everything. How do you see that going forward? Is that something that you're still striving to now that you have kind of settled into adjunct professoring, at least for the time being, or is that just something that you was unintentional and you don't know that you'll continue doing it. The TEDx was on purpose. That was uh, something that I wanted to do and uh, I had an opportunity to do it. So, you know, I, I was able to, you know, I, I was just lucky enough to be in a position that I could, I could get that slot and, and do that. And I was, you know, it was something I really wanted to do. It, it meant a lot to me because I actually, I went back to uh, where I went to college, uh, University of Arkansas at Monticello and did it there. It was their first TEDx program. And I was just, 
it was a great experience and it was something that I was, I was so proud to do. It's still, you know, it's still the thing that means the most to me that I've done. Twitter was an accident or it was an accidentally on purpose, I guess, because I had been kind of trying, kind of trying to figure out, you know, a, a way to get over, a way to get a little steam. And just that, that happened with the video and then, you know, got a, I got a little bit of attention for a while and I, I still get, you know, some, some shit happened and it's more, you know, probably to be attributed to me and my corrosive personality that I, you know, got it, got into, got into disputes and trouble with Twitter. Do you see yourself continuing to release like YouTube videos or perhaps even do another TEDx at some point or um, even popular writings such as, I mean, I think you mean you have talked in the past about an, an idea you had for an article in the Bitter Southerner, for example, and I think that that would fit great. So have you put any more thought into stuff like that? I think I have to become a writer first and with me with the issues that I have kind of getting, getting my own head, right. Like it's, you know, I'm just, I'm doing my best to, I, you know, I teach, I teach this clip. It's, it's three classes, but it's the same class. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm learning how to teach as I go and I'm writing lectures as I go, figuring all this out. I also have a, another part-time job that I have to do stuff for at times. And it's, I would have time to do more stuff, and I'm, I'm going to need it. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to sort something out to be able to write my dissertation, but I've got to, something's got to give with the brain fog. You know, it's the brain fog that it's the brain fog that causes me problems and causes me to represent myself poorly. And it's also the brain fog that keeps me from achieving the things that people think I can achieve. And that I, that I really think that I could achieve if, if, if that fog wasn't there, but, just a matter of figuring out how to get rid of the fog, man. Yeah, that is the the crux of the issue, I suppose. Um, and I, you know, my good friend L, um, Alan, that you've met, he yes. is currently going through something similar. One of the, my best friends from high school is also, and you know, sometimes it's not just about access to counseling and medication because they have that and certainly that helps but sometimes you need something more and I, and I wish I had an answer for what that was but it's not something that I do um, have you tried and I'm just throwing this out there not attempting to to give you unsolicited advice but you know online support groups for for people suffering through some of the same issues and that you are I don't know if that would be helpful or not no I don't even know where to find something like that or I'm sure it's out there but yeah. I don't know, man. It's, um, I, I just, it, the hardest thing about, you know, getting older and going out into the world and kind of trying to do your own thing is that, um, you, you lose touch with your friends and it's, mm-hmm. it's a really, that, that's a really hard thing to live with. And it, you know, that just kind of, this kind of whole thing of just being lonely, you know, it's kind of a, you know, I live in a, a huge godless, soulless city that where nobody cares about anyone and nobody cares if I'm alive or dead. You know, not a I don't I don't feel like I don't feel like this is uh being kinda isolated and not having any friends. You know, not 
it hasn't been a great thing for the old uh, old mental health wagon there. I don't know why it's a wagon, but it's a wagon now. Well, it's a, it's a good metaphor, a wagon, especially for historians like us. We understand. <laughs> um, and I would agree with that. I think that being away from friend group, whether it's the group that you grew up with or even to a lesser extent, maybe people in your cohort, but just people who have an understanding of the, the stuff that you're going through and the struggles that you face with your quote unquote day job is important. And, you know, as somebody who grew up in a town of less than 800 people who now lives in a metropolitan area of 600,000, I, I can definitely feel that loneliness and especially being, uh, I'm probably at least 15 to almost 20 years older than just about everybody else here. That's not a professor. So, yeah, I went. Uh, I grew up in a town of about six thousand, and I live in a uh, metropolitan area of two point three million. Yeah, gosh, yeah. Is uh, you you fuck with Tyler Childers, right? Yeah, dude, totally. That, that song uh, from his new album Creaker, man, that song just it came out. That album came out like when I had been here for about three months, and it's the it's about you know a country boy being in a big city and the courses and he'd rather be dead than alive one more minute in this godforsaken town yep just all oh, that hit so hard for me man. man the one that got me was last in my kind by jason isbell man i've never listened to isbell that much and i really i really need to because it's like you know i hear people talk about him it was uh like i think he kind of he just flew under my radar because there was a time like a long time that I just wasn't messing with like any new music. Yeah. So that I started messing with new music when I found out about like Sturgill Simpson and Tyler mm-hmm. Childers. So I think I missed Isbell and I need to go back and catch up. No, I definitely think so. Um, I mean, he was in the drive by truckers. You may or may not want to fuck with that stuff. I think it's really good, but it's, if you start with some of his solo stuff, uh, like Southeastern where he's, he's really kind of, embracing kind of that bitter southerner a better south vibe and you know um white man living in a white man's world holy fuck dude uh, oh man that uh that sounds like it's in my wheelhouse man oh yeah man dude yeah, definitely there's a, that one there's a song you know uh chris stapleton i do he was in a band called the steel drivers yes and they have a song called can you run that it's he's it's Chris Stapleton singing and he's telling the story from the point of view of an uh, uh, an enslaved African American during the Civil War Shit. and he's 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 speaking to his wife and he's saying can you run We're, oh god it's fucking choking me up just think it's such a beautiful song man uh, can you run by the Steel Drivers guys stop listening to this and go YouTube that right now. Cause it's just, just me because you know, that's what I study. And that was like, uh, my master's work was heavily involved with, uh, you know, wartime emancipation and oh, yeah. just all that, that song hits so hard. Well, I'm not going to sing it to you, but I'm going to read you one of the verses from white man living in a white man's world. I'm a white man living on a white man's street. I've got the bones of the red man under my feet. The highway runs to their burial grounds past the oceans of cotton. Oh, man yeah yeah so anyway i highly recommend jason it's uh those songs you know 
the songs that you feel, man, music, you, you want to feel, you want to listen to music where you feel like the person singing that song has felt your pain. And that's why, you know, these guys just are so incredible to me. And it's like, uh, this guy's name, uh, William Hogue, who has that song, Still a Southern Man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm still a Southern man. I don't want your stars and bars or your blood on my damn hands. Yep. That's the one. Beautiful. I agree with that. I agree with that. Especially in this, this new alt country or roots grass or whatever they're calling it these days. But just a lot of these songs touch my sensibilities. And I, I have always found that even at my lowest points that music could reach me in a way that other mediums can't. And, you know, because people can express what I'm feeling inside to a 4-4 beat, and it's just amazing. And it has always astounded me. And that's, we're going to, naturally, you and I were eventually going to find a way to tie something that we were talking about into wrestling. Yes, sir. I always think about, you know, that, that David Allen Coe song, The Ride. It was, I heard, uh, I don't know, I haven't listened to, uh, I used to listen to Wrestling Weekly with uh, Les Thatcher and Vic Sosa, and I haven't listened to it in a long time. But he, the ride th- that was the uh, the opening theme to that podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, Les Thatcher always talks about it, and he had uh, Jerry Briscoe on it, and they talked about it there. That like that song, like that was one of the the favorite songs of the wrestlers, you know, riding the roads during the territory days, because it's the uh, yeah, drifter. Can you make folks feel what you feel inside? Because if yep. you're star bound, you got to warn you, it's a long, hard ride. Exactly. I love, man, the older I get, the more I'm just like, the more I'm just into storytelling. Like, you know, music, wrestling, movies, you know, I, I want a good story. That's, that's like, that means, that means more to me than, you know, popularity or, you know, like in wrestling, like work rate or high spots. Like, I want, you know, do your work rate, do your high spots, but, you know, do a story. Yeah. So... With that segue, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about wrestling. I didn't watch it, but did you watch the AEW pay-per-view last night? I did, man. That was a that was a great show, man. It was, uh, you know, I loved the build of that show so much. Like Jericho and Moxley, the Cody and MJF, the um, the Young Bucks, Kenny Omega and Adam Cole match. The thing about the show is that like there were a few matches that like I didn't think for my taste and sensibility were great wrestling matches. Like, uh, the opener was, uh, Jake Hager and Dustin Rhodes. And like, they had a match and they were trying something and it didn't work for me. And I'm sure you heard about this, but there was a spot like, uh, Jake Hager's, uh, significant other, I guess his girlfriend, his wife was in the audience and they did the old spot where the baby face, uh, kisses the heels woman and the mm. crowd pops, and it's right. and I immediately knew. I'm like, man, like, like that's that's not a thing for a babyface to do. Like, we, like, really, we always should have known better. But now yeah. it's like a really public thing, and like, I, I don't, I don't think that I don't think that anybody involved meant anything by it. But I just feel like, I feel like maybe they should have known that that wasn't a thing to do in 2020. Right. But, you know, they had a match. It was fine. It, it didn't quite work for me, but they tried to do something. Darby Allen and Sammy Guevara. 
they actually had like their actual match was like five minutes, but they did a whole insane thing before the match where as soon as Darby came out, he did a toe face suicida. They fought all around the ring. Sammy did an insane six thirty off the top rope to the floor through a table. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then they had their match and they did like everything they could in five minutes. Darby won with the coffin drop. It was great for what it was. And then the then they put the the tag title match with the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega and Adam Page. And this clear what they were going for was trying to recreate the Golden Lovers Young Bucks match from that New Japan show in Long Beach a couple of years ago. Did you ever see that match? Yes. Man, like that I think it like it's probably my favorite two on two tag match ever. It's really up there. It's a, now, a fantastic match. And this is what they were going for. And it's this match was incredible. I, I agree with what everyone's saying. I think it's the best match in AEW history. I think it's one of the best matches, but it, I think it's just because of the way that that other match was tied into that, the uh, Kenny and Ibushi story. Mm-hmm. I think that one hit a little bit harder for me just on an emotional level. Sure. But this match was incredible. Adam Page is a star. He is so over the people love him. They chant cowboy shit. It's like everybody loves it. And they do this match. And there was a point, and you you kind of know you kind of know how I feel about wrestling. That I'm I am pretty tolerant of modern wrestling, but I have my things that, you know, if you do too much, you do too much and you lost me. Yeah. And there were, there were a couple of points in this match, you know, toward like the latter third that I was like, this may be starting to go too long, but I admit that I was wrong because it just kept building and getting better to the point that, it, they did everything it they had like the ramp to the ring you know mm-hmm. and the young bucks give hangman the the indie taker on the on the stage and they keep on and they're double teaming kenny they try to put kenny away for several minutes and they finally they're going to go for the melter driver and hangman managed to recover and prevent the melter driver and they keep going and then matt jackson it's like Nick is the guy who does the more spectacular stuff in the ring, but Matt Jackson is so smart, such a good storyteller in the ring. And in this story, like, so he and Paige were the aggressive ones, and Kenny and Nick were kind of trying to keep peace. Yeah. But during during this long period where they were working over Kenny, like, Kenny had the to- uh, shoulder taped up from the match with Pac on TV. And it was like Matt was destroying his shoulder, stomping on it. And he goes and he's ripping the tape off of his shoulder. And it's kind of like point where like Nick is like, like, hey, man, what are you doing? Like, you know, this this is our friend. It was just the stuff like that with the, the tempers flaring between different people and other people trying to keep the peace. And then finally, they have hit each other with everything on Earth. And Kenny, Kenny's got the one trump card. The, the one thing that, that nobody's ever kicked out of, uh, except for, for Kota Ibushi the one time, he's still got the one-winged angel, and he's going for it, and he can't get it because of the bad shoulder. Oh, beautiful. And so Hangman tags in, and Hangman does the one-winged angel to Matt Jackson. And it may have actually like looked better. It was incredible. And it's like, oh, my God, this has got to be the finish. And the other buck who had been out for a while, Nick came in and made the save. And then I think like after that was when they, and there was a uh, moment where the bucks did the, uh, the golden trigger 
the double knee strike that Ibushi uh-huh. and Kenny did to Kenny. <laughs> I, I love the stuff like that. And then finally, it's the page makes the big comeback, and Page hits the buckshot lariat and wins. And it was just, you know, fucking incredible match. See, I love like, storytelling I, like that that touches on stuff that you it rewards you for being a longtime fan. So do I. And that's like that's something that I've really enjoyed about AEW that they they do that intricate storytelling and I give a, you know, I think they've got very smart people who have studied some of the best storytelling in wrestling and mm-hmm. it shows, um, the Nyla Rose, Chris Statlander match. It, they, they weren't, nothing was going to follow that last match. And then they just kind of, you know, it was a match. They, I, I didn't like, I didn't hate it or anything. I didn't hate anything on the show. MJF yeah. and Cody was awesome. Uh, MJF, like a like a seven or eight on the Muda scale. Holy crap! The, the finish, I'm not sure that I love the finish, but it it was good. It was well done. Cody finally, like he's making his comeback, and he hits the crossroads, and he picks him up, and he hits another crossroads, and he's gonna do one more. And at that point, MJF manages to slip away, clock him with the the diamond ring, and falls on top and pins him. So MJF MJF won the match because of Cody's hubris. I think that story is going to keep going, and I think it's going to stay really interesting. Yes, um, I want that program to go on longer. That is uh, the one criticism that I've seen of AEW that to me makes sense is some of the storytelling does feel rushed, that they haven't, like, I would, me personally, and this is, you know, fantasy booking at this point, I would have delayed the turn a little bit. Um, of MJF on Cody, you know. Um, yeah, I I would have too. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. I, I agree. I see what you're saying. So, but with that said, the the fact that they are continuing this program and having MJF win is a good sign for them to to pull it out some more. Because you know, if Cody wins now, that the feud is effectively over. You need to have him right be the bullshit heel that he is and, and get a couple of dodgy wins like this to extend the program. Let me, let me finish this up and then I'll circle back around to my, just me. Oh, sure. Fantasy yeah, totally. So uh, the next match was Pac and orange Cassidy, you know, orange, like it doesn't, that's not for me, but it gets over with that crowd. So, okay. And you know, people, people that like this thing said it was great. That's fine. It, this, this wasn't there for me and that's okay. Uh, and uh, so Pac won with the Brutalizer after the Lucha Brothers came out to uh, distract the best friend. So it looks like, you know, they may be continuing. They may do like a six man program or just continue the program with uh, Lucha Brothers and best friends. So the main event was uh, Chris Jericho and John Moxley for the AEW world title. And they had been uh, Jericho has a like a gnarly scar from when Mox had butted him on TV last week. He had like seven stitches they had a wild brawl and it, it came down to, so the whole build of this match was that about seven or eight weeks ago, Jericho took one of the spikes out of his jacket and spiked Mox's eye and Mox, uh, he wore, you know, sunglasses when they were on the boat. He even like when he went to wrestle in Japan, he wore the eye patch. He's been selling the eye thing. So this match and Mox has overcome all types of inner circle interference. And they finally, the uh, ref Aubrey has ejected the inner circle. It's just down to them. 
and Jericho gouges Mox's other eye. So now Mox, you know, he can't see at all. And, and the big reveal is he takes off the eye patch because it's been like eight weeks because other eye has healed. So he can see. And he hit the uh, the paradigm shift and got the pin and won the title. The place went crazy. He cut an awesome rah-rah top baby face of this awesome company that everybody loves promo. And it was good, man. John Moxley is, he he's the real deal, man. Certainly is. He certainly is. Uh, it's just amazing what he has blossomed into considering what Dean Ambrose was. Yeah, he's been he's just been incredible on fire. So back to the fantasy bookie. So my idea would be that, and maybe maybe not for the pay per view, the next pay per view in May, because I don't know if this is at that level. But I would do uh, first of all, it Cody and MJF. The whole you can't touch me thing is over with. So I would have Cody be pissed and just coming at MJF at every opportunity, and he's trying to. Whereas the first match he got by giving MJF whatever he wanted, now Cody is trying to goad MJF into demanding the match. And of course MJF doesn't want any more Cody. So I'm thinking we get to uh, we get to MJF challenging Moxley and maybe uh, Cody fucks him somehow and that's how we get our, our Cody MJF rematch. But you know, that, that's just me that's just what? me fantasy booking. Well, I think that would be some good symmetry to how the feud started. So I, I really like that idea. Um, the one other thing I would say from your comments is I think Orange Cassidy and the Best Friends versus Pac and the Lucha Bros would be fun. But, man, that is an imbalance in talent in those two teams. Not that, you know, the, the Best Friends and Orange Cassidy are untalented. It's just see- the Lucha Brothers and Pac are so good. And I don't, I don't have anything against Orange Cassidy. And like watching that, watching him do the thing he does, I'm like, you know what? That that's kind of funny. I see where if you like that kind of thing in your wrestling, you would enjoy that. It's just as simple that like that. That's not the wrestling that I like. But it, yeah, it, it's over. It's over. So good for him. Yeah, it's a testament to him that he got it over. And he is when, when he drops the gimmick. And actually starts working. He's a hell of a worker. But I'm like you. That that whole gimmick is not for me. But you know, we're we're, we're the old guys now. We're out we of are. touch. No, totally. But I mean, you know, I think it's a, a credit to to your point of of AEW and their storytelling. That old guys like us are still invested in it. You know, and I I don't remember who said it, but I saw it on Twitter last night and somebody messaging Meltzer or Rob Naylor. I don't remember which one. Um, they are by far not the same person. Um, <laughs> Both but, great in their own ways, but not yo, the same yes, person. totally, totally. Um, but somebody said that they they felt watching the show that it was a throwback to mid south style storytelling. Yeah, I saw people. Yeah, I saw someone said that as well. And. You know, having not seen the show, it's hard for me to to completely say. But and what I have seen of them, I do agree with that because it does, for the most part, make sense. I get it, and I see a lot of uh, I see a lot of King's Road style storytelling in this. Mm. In that, it is storytelling through wrestling and through wins and losses. And you know, that's probably that's probably some of that mid south too. I'm like 
I'm slowly kind of working on my Mid-South education. It's not there yet, but, you know, it's it's storytelling through wrestling, and yeah. I am a big fan. That's, Me you know, too. that's why I love New Japan so much. Oh, yeah, without but, a doubt. Did you see that uh, today is the 17th anniversary of the, the last Mitsuharu Masawa Kenakabashi title match? I did see that. That one yeah. at Budokan. Yeah, I... Uh, I started watching it on YouTube earlier and I got distracted. I'm going to go back and finish it later, but yeah, man, those, uh, well, they never had a bad one. So absolutely not, man. Uh, yeah. Wrestling is great, man. Wrestling is the one thing that always makes me happy no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, I'd say that music is just slightly ahead of wrestling for me personally, but I have always loved wrestling and always will love wrestling and all its permutations. Um, certain parts of it doesn't, don't necessarily appeal to me but it you know um when it's good and you get two guys or gals who can go out there and tell a story it's nothing is better i will say this about aew man uh that tv show like that is the i i got really burnt out on weekly tv wrestling about like 10 or 11 years ago and this is the first time since then that a re- a weekly wrestling show is must-see programming for me. Yeah, I can't argue with that. I would say that NWA Power is pretty good, too, but it's not the same caliber. Yeah, that, and, you know, that that's cool, and it's its own thing, but, you know, it's not... It's, you know, that's trying to do old-fashioned TV wrestling with a modern twist. AEW yeah. is... I'm not going to say that AEW is perfect because it's not. There's stuff that I don't like. There's stuff that I have problems with. But I think that they are – and just understanding that some things aren't going to be for me, I think that they are – or have the possibility of being the the pinnacle of what a modern U.S. TV pay-per-view wrestling product should be. Well, and, you know, that, that in itself is a great endorsement because if you think about it, you know, if you go back before the sale of Crockett to Turner, wrestling was weird. I mean, they would have different stuff. They would have the little people come through. They would have all the, these different things. So even, you know, some old-timers like to say, oh, everything was so buttoned up back then and everything made sense. No, it really didn't. So you need to come off of that stuff. But the point was, you would have you would have on a card a classic title match of say um, one of the Briscoes versus one of the Funks. Then you would have a bloody brawl with Abdullah and Bruiser Brody, and then some like comedy stuff with the the little people or Missing Link or somebody. So I mean, it kind of had all of it under one tent. And AEW is attempting to replicate that, and I do appreciate the hell out of that. I do too, man. I you know the only things that like. Like, the thing with NXT is that I can't make myself watch any weekly WWE TV because I cannot stand the way it's presented, the way that the wrestling match is secondary to everything else going on. I want, on my wrestling, my number one requirement is that the wrestling in the ring should be the most important thing happening. And when you do entrances and introductions... And then you uh, you ring the bell and they lock up and do a high spot and then go to commercial. I don't like that. 
that infuriates yeah. me, and that's the reason that I can't watch WWE TV. But these takeovers, man, incredible, incredible stuff, and I love it. Yeah, the the quality of the matches, especially NXT takeovers, I still track those down and watch them, but I'm like you. I don't know the full context because I can't make myself sit through their attempts at storytelling because they are focusing so much of it outside of the ring. You know, I don't yeah, like that, that, that the match is secondary, and I don't care about all the backstage stuff. And in AEW, say what you will, but whatever, you know, there are aspects of it that I don't always like, but the wrestling matches are the most important thing on the show and everybody knows it. Just like they should be. Yeah. Yes, exactly. exactly. Wrestling is beautiful, man. Wrestling is beautiful. It is. It is. So what are your matches of the year so far then? My what matches the, uh, of the year, uh, that tag match from the pay-per-view is on the list and Will Ospreay and Hiromu Takahashi from the Tokyo Dome and Ibushi Okada from the Tokyo Dome. I think that those three pretty safely uh, my top three matches of the year. And below that, like, um, I re I, I liked the, the Naito Okada match. I'm mm -hmm. just like, that was a Naito match. And I'm just, I I'm, I'm a bigger Okada fan than a Naito fan. Nothing against Naito. It's just, you know, a thing of personal preference. I just think Okada's incredible. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. But they had a great match. And then, I was really surprised at how much I liked the Naito Kenta match because I just thought that first ballot wrestling observer hall of famer Booker Gato, man, did it again. Got that yeah. thing really heated up. They sold out that, you know, the bigger building in Osaka had a, had a great match, told a great story. Really liked that match. And there was uh, one other one I wanted to think of. Oh, um, Pac and Kenny Omega, the Iron Man match from TV last week. Incredible match. Pac has been on a tear. Uh since coming back to AEW. I mean, I'm sure he was in Dragon's Gate, too. I just didn't get to see most of that stuff. That um, guy is so good, and it's just appalling what WWE did to him. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt there. Um, and I have really enjoyed the resurgence of Kenta as somebody who was a huge fan of his back in 06 when he was first Me. came over into ROH. Me too, man. Me too. Loved that mid two thousands Kenta. Mm -hmm. It was you know he was really just a shell of himself in WWE, and then went back to Japan and just immediately re you know he's we saw it we were there yeah. that first night of the G one in Dallas. It's yeah. like fucking Kenta's back, man. He is, he is, and I am so happy for it. Oh, me too. Well, man, I mean we've been talking for going on an hour and fifteen minutes. What? Do you want to go much longer, or are you feeling good where we're at? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I'm i good to go. It's up to you, man. You got more questions for me? That was the majority of them, honestly. Um, I get, I'll, I'll throw another question out there, right. and this is one kind of motivated by self-interest, but what are we going to get back on the horse and ride out some more ECW stuff? You know what, man? I um, It's... I, I want to do it. I want to get back to it because it really, it's really something I enjoy. It, I just, I need to, I need to get a handle on, on what's wrong, you know, in my, in my head and in my own, my own life a little bit. But you know, when, when I get this sorted out, we're going to, we're going to start doing some, some badass podcasting, man. Oh, yeah. 
Well, I mean, it's, it's like I told you on the, the last episode that we recorded. I love doing it. I love doing it with you. I don't want to do it with anybody else. So take your time because, you know, I, I have an understanding of how difficult these things can be, especially when you don't have insurance and, and aren't able to get the support that you need. So I'll be here. And you gotta, when, you're, when you're ready, we'll we'll step back into it. I just gotta gotta get a handle on my own brain to where I can, you know, I can actually spend my time doing things productive instead of you know listening to my brain scream at itself. That that'd be a big help for a lot of things. It would. It would. So what? I guess the with that. Do you have any immediate goals or anything coming up in the next few weeks that you're really looking forward to? Oh, um, just trying to teach this class, man. That's the, that's the priority that, and just hoping that, I don't know, man, it's kind of hard because I, um, like last week I had, you know, a string of really good days and then just. Things start piling on you, and you start to feel worse and worse. You end up feeling worse than you ever felt in the first place. Yeah. And it just feels like every time you take a step forward, you got to take, like, 16 steps back. But just working hard on trying to teach these classes, trying to do some good for the students. Because I, I don't know, man. I don't know, I don't know how long I'll be teaching. I don't know if I'll get, you know, really good at it. But I want to I wanna do the best that I can for as long as I'm doing this. Well, I have no doubt at all that you're doing a good job now, and you know whether it's something that you stick with or not is going to be, and how fulfilling you find it, as much as aptitude has to do with anything. So hopefully, if you do like it, you, you get the opportunity to continue with it. Um, and you know, as as one of your fans, I'm your friend, but I'm also one of your fans of the work that you put out there. Um, and I just want you to know that all of us out here are pulling for you and offer any support that we can. Um, so I know it doesn't necessarily help, but I'm always here. If you ever need to talk about anything or just want to bitch to somebody about something. Yeah. Man, it, and I love like all of you guys so much, all of you guys that support me and you're, you're there for me even when I'm rotten or even when I feel like I'm being rotten, you know, it, I, I don't know what to say, man. I, I spend a lot of time worrying about. You know, just trying to be a good enough person, and I don't, I often don't feel like I'm, uh, I'm reaching the potential that I should in that department. And, but the fact that, you know, I, I have support, it's, it's hard to ask for help, and it's hard to admit that you need help. And even yeah, when you admit, it is. And even when you admit that you need help, and you have people that are offering to help, you know, you don't know, like, what can I actually ask for? What help can I actually ask for? What would actually do any good? I don't know. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know what to do about any of this, man. Um, I don't know. I, I said, I said that I was quitting Twitter and I don't know, man. It's just, I feel like it brings out the worst in me. And sometimes I, I, I become a person that I don't like and, you know, well, I just don't know. I saw a thing, and I haven't vetted it, and it's like so many things. There's so much out there that you don't know what necessarily to believe or trust. But I did see a thing where somebody had reported that one of the big GOP donors had bought a huge controlling interest of Twitter from Jack. Yeah, I saw that too. 
So yeah, I, it's possible that I might be stepping away from Twitter as well. But, you know, there are – there have to be alternatives out there for like-minded people to get together and share their experiences and stories in a platform that is not the hellscape that is Facebook. Um, so I don't know what it is. Maybe it's Discord channels or something. But I have a Discord channel. If, uh, people can find it. Oh, cool. I can find it. I started to it's still up there. I hadn't been very active. It I don't know, it just I feel like with with Twitter it's just a barrage of everything horrible in the world and how little I can do to stop it. Yeah. It's dude, if just, just scroll through your feed and read if you read all of the different takes about the Democratic primaries and give them, like, just equal benefit of the doubt, you have no idea what the fuck is going on. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. That is for sure. You know, and I, and I think that's part of it. And I, for the longest time, I kept my Twitter private. I have since made it public. Um, I, I sometimes think about making it private again, but I didn't. The only reason I made it public was to try and get some engagement with the public, and I and I have had that. I've gotten to know, you know, more scholars since I've done that. I've gotten followers for whatever that's worth. Not that I have that many, but it, it's just like you say. There are so many takes, and and so many of them are troll takes, or people who are stuck in their own echo chamber and glee at the misery of others and i i don't i try to limit my exposure to that because that's uh, why what i mean i really troll a do, little bit but kind of say, why? what i really want to do is just uh disappear from twitter and come back under a mask and just anonymously talk about wrestling again <laughs> go for it brother yeah it just I don't know it. You know, I had the big accounts that disappeared and got banned for whatever reason. So then, like, I reverted back to like my original account that you know, and all the history people started following me. So it it was you no know, no longer a place where I could you know just be me without being judged according to standards that I never asked to be judged by. Yeah. And, I don't know. That's the that's the key takeaway from this podcast is I don't know what I'm doing or what's going on. I'm just I'm just trying to still keep being here. Well, we want you to still be here, so just keep on doing you. The rest of it can sit and spin. No, I'm I'm not plugging anything because I don't care anymore. But make sure, please, to plug all of your various projects because you're the you're the podcast man now. <laughs> Um, I do have a few. Um, so because nobody asked for it, the Thunderdome Metal Reviews podcast that I do, we have upped to two albums a week. I have also picked up doing a punk and new wave and post-punk album review podcast, as well as a country music album review podcast. So those are four of my podcasts. Oh, wait, you're doing a country podcast? Now? Yeah, dude. Whiskey and Woe is the name of it. Oh, man, I'm going to, yeah, you got to, I, I want to be on there to talk about something. All Fuck right. yeah, dude. We'll cut yeah. you on. I'm um, going to, 
yeah I'm, I'm gonna subscribe to that and check it out i love you know i'm uh i i try to be open-minded and think about different kind of music but you know i country music above everything forever for me so yeah, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna check that i didn't even know about that one man you got you're, you're you're gonna be doing more podcasts than brian last here soon man oh, well if only i made even a fraction of what brian last makes to do them <laughs> <laughs> um let's see what else i've got the evoking history podcasts which is where i it's the one i'm proudest of because i think it's the one that is actually doing good i love my album review podcast but and and the the balance of things they're kind of meaningless because it's subjective but i enjoy just making it talking about this shit with my friends uh, but the evoking history, I do try and bring people on so that they can talk about the research and get their name out there a little bit. And if I can do anything to add bandwidth and balance to the bullshit out there, uh, that's what I try and do with that one. Yeah, see, see, that was the original goal behind the Outlaw History Podcast, and you're just doing it better now. Uh, well, thank you. I don't know that it's better, but I appreciate the, the comment. And um, and then on occasion, when the moon is right, me and Alan still get together and do Dangerously Eclectic. Which is fun because those conversations just go everywhere. But yeah, and, uh, definitely go back into the archives of this podcast and hear me and Ben and Alan recap our live experience at the opening day of the G1 Climax last year. Yeah, man, definitely. You know, we're going to have to try and get to a show again sometime. Absolutely. That was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Kind of, kind of wonder if it's worth trying to go to. Uh, to New York for uh, for the New Japan show at Madison Square Garden. I mean, you're a braver man than I. I've been in New York and I don't care much for it. And I, I've been, I've been through there once. My entire New York City experience. I flew into LaGuardia and took a shuttle to Grand Central Station, and then I took a train upstate, and then I came back. I took the train into Grand Central Station and I took an Uber back to LaGuardia. That is my entire New York City experience. Yeah. Um, I did see a match that I think is going to be on this upcoming. This is nothing to do with New York, but I think is going to be around the time of WrestleMania weekend this year that I wish I was going to WrestleMania weekend to see this match. Yeah, Loki and Zack Sabre Jr. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, I am excited for uh, the match that we were supposed to get back in September or October that got uh, canceled when uh, Moxley had that staph infection. They're finally doing Mox and Barnett at Bloodsport. Oh, yeah, that'll be great. That will be so great. What? <laughs> I am so, so, I've never cared less about a WrestleMania. The things I'm excited for that weekend are like uh, Mox is fighting Josh Barnett and... There's a, there's a Ring of Honor show that has my attention for the first time in about two years. Wow. Um, you know, they just crowned a new champion over the weekend. Yeah, I saw uh, last night when, when everybody was watching the AEW pay-per-view. <laughs> yeah. Roosh beat PCO to, to regain the Ring of Honor World Championship. Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm, I'm kind of into that. Uh, I, I want to see, like, Jay White and Marty Skrull uh, gets my attention for, for some reason, so... That should be really good. I'm down for this. I, I love Jay White. He's just he's just an irredeemable piece of garbage, evil prick, no good son of a bitch, and I love him for all those qualities. Yeah, it's either him or MJF who's the best character heel out there right now. Oh, it's they're they're like completely different, mm-hmm. but they're just both those two and Kenta are like the three real uh, heels in wrestling right now. Yes, that's true. Oh. <sighs> 
I tell you what, one of these days, man, we're just gonna we're just gonna lose our minds and just do another generic weekly wrestling podcast just so <laughs> just so I can get all of my all of my takes out into the universe. Hell yeah, man. I look forward to it. Ben, ben uh, buddy, I appreciate you being here today. Uh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. It always is, my friend. Uh, for maybe the last time, I don't know. Uh, this has been the Outlaw History Podcast. Thank you all for listening, and I love you guys.